My name is KJ, and I've discovered the past four years living in Europe that going by initials is a very American thing to do, especially if one of those initials is junior. So I am, I'm Keith Jr., KJ. My, me, my family, we are your church planting missionaries in Europe, whether you know it or not, whether you know us or not. Uh, Alberta Baptist Church, more than any other, we belong to you. We are yours. In, uh, in the north of England right now, there is a church uh, that we were there helping get started, and we, we passed on to a local leader that is continuing to grow, looking to plant more churches, and they are part of your legacy here in Alberta. And right now in France, there is a new church birthed in Paris, also looking to plant more churches, uh, and we're encouraged by it. it's, it's growing and the people the Lord are sending to us, and they are part of your legacy as well, and anything that might come from them. So, so thank you on their behalf. Thank you this morning for being a part of the work in England, in France, and around the world spreading the gospel. Uh, if you want to keep up with who we are and what we're doing, you can, you can ask me questions about France personally while I'm here. Uh, you can sign up for updates that we send out every month, plantparis.com. You can even follow us on Instagram, plantparis. Uh, and perhaps that's a good segue this morning into what we're going to discuss. Because like it or not, we live in a social media age. 2019 is not likely to change that, I don't think. Uh, Hopefully you're aware of that. We live in a social media age through social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. Our lives increasingly intersect with people who are not physically present with us, right? You realize that we're living in a, in a time like no other in human history. And there's a lot of good things about that. For many of us, like, like my family, uh, who lives far away from family, social media gives a valuable window into everyday life. People get to see what we're doing. I get to see what my family's doing, and that's great. Whenever I want to feel deeply grateful, I... I pull up Instagram and I just scroll through my, my feed of, of th- pictures I've taken because it's like a visual record of what God has done. And I just feel overwhelmingly grateful for all the, all the smiling faces, all the places he, and everything he's done that's been captured. There's great potential for good in social media, but surprise, surprise, there's also great potential for evil and for envy. Facebook often functions like the highlight reel of our lives. Our best moments, the parts of our lives we find the most exciting, we put up there, and that's okay. It's okay, you're not meant to share all the boring bits of your life, right? No one wants to, to, to have that. Uh, but studies have shown how Facebook can easily make people feel depressed. You know this? make people feel depressed because they're seeing all the highlights of other people's holidays, all the fun moments everyone else is experiencing and are left feeling disappointed, feeling like their lives are a disappointment by comparison. You've got all that on one hand and then everyone's gripes on the other hand as well on Facebook and it's all coming at you. And I think Instagram even pushes it farther beyond our friends, giving us windows into the lives of people we don't even know and we'll never meet in real life. We see Instagram lifestyles of travel and wealth, beauty and fitness, 
And it's tempting to envy, isn't it? It's tempting to envy. It's tempting to want to emulate as well. We now feel like we ought to have the same things. We ought to have the same vacations. We ought to look fit in the same way. Our homes and our parties have to be Pinterest perfect now. Everything has to be staged just right for the camera. Uh, We read mom blogs as one does and we're looking for help and for connection with others, but instead we often just feel pressure and condemnation if we don't parent in a certain way. The New Testament book of James asks us a question. James asks, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your desires that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. You are envious and cannot obtain. One of the biggest problems with social media is that it gives us new avenues to envy that we didn't have before. New avenues to envy, new avenues to lust, virtually and from afar. I don't even have to know this person in real life anymore. And all of a sudden they're there in my, you might like to follow them feed. And now I'm envious of a person I didn't know existed a minute ago, right? You ever experienced that? What we need is a word from God. We need a Psalm for a social media age. And that's exactly what we have here in Psalm 73. Let's look at it together. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, as you see in the superscription there at the beginning. Asaph was a priestly worship leader in the days of King David. And Psalm 73 is like a psalm of personal testimony. It's a psalm of personal struggle as Asaph envies the lifestyle bloggers of his day. Let's see how he begins. Look at verses one through three with me. Surely God is good to Israel, to his people, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here in these three verses, we have a truth, a crisis, and a trigger. The truth is this, God is good to his people. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to his people. This is just the shorthand version of the big promise that we have in Romans chapter eight, verse 28. What do we know? We know this, that God is good. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Surely God is good to his people, right? We know this. This is a promise. But knowing this is true doesn't exempt Asaph or me from moments of personal crisis. Here's the crisis, verse two. Surely God's good to Israel, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. You realize this, it is possible to know something in our heads. Like God is good to his people. God is good to me. And our hearts to wander from it. My feet came close to stumbling, to slipping. Yes, I know all things work together for the good, but man, I came close to stumbling. 
my feet came close to slipping. We can intellectually say, yes, this is true, and yet our hearts still refuse to believe it. Just ask any smoker, right? Does smoking give people lung cancer? And they will say, yes, it does. But does your heart really believe it or care that that's true? And they'll be like, no, I I just, I go ahead. I continue on. Our minds can assent to a truth while our hearts functionally disbelieve it and live like it's not true. We see this, surely God's good to his people, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And here's the trigger that caused him to slip, almost slip, verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, who are the arrogant here that Asaph envies? What does it mean to be arrogant? What what does it even mean to be arrogant? Uh, I think it was was C.S. Lewis that observed that arrogance is that thing we are so often blind to in ourselves, but so quick to see in everyone else, right? Oh, that person's arrogant, but we're so slow to see our own arrogance. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about human arrogance and that arrogance stretches much deeper than we realize. You remember the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Old Testament, book of Genesis? Do you remember why God destroyed them? As an example, you might say it was because of sexual assault and perversion. Yes, that's true, but that wasn't the heart of it. Do you remember what the heart of it was? Ezekiel tells us, Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them. So what does arrogance look like? According to Ezekiel, it looks like having no regard for others in your abundance and ease and thinking instead that the world revolves around you and your desires. That's why sexual assault and perversion thrived in Sodom because the desire of the individual became supreme and was unchecked. I do what I want and I take what I want from others. That was the culture. And you can see the, you can see the arrogance of it and you can see how it can and often does become the dominant theme of whole cultures, like it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. I take what I want. I do what I want. I take what I want from others. The Bible has many piercing things to say about arrogance, but let me just give you one more before we move on. James, again, James chapter four, verses 13 through 16, says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit Yet you do not know what your life for a little while tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, 
you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So who are the arrogant? What does the arrogance look like in James chapter four? The arrogant are those who live their lives and make their plans as though they were independent beings from God. Whereas from God's perspective, what's the truth? Your every heartbeat is a gift from him. Your every breath is gift from him. You depend upon him for everything, for your being, for your existence. It's not your due, it is a gift from him. Who are you to make plans independent from God? As though you were independent beings. If we are utterly dependent on God for everything, then it's, it is arrogance. It is the heart of arrogance to live like that is not true. Now, my fellow Americans, we were born into a country that prizes independence, that prizes self-confidence, that prizes self-assertiveness and highly capable people. And in doing so, we, we prize things that often breed arrogance in the heart. And arrogance is a deceptive thing. It's something that we innately sense is wrong, but at the same time, we are strangely attracted to it. It's like that, um, uh, what do you call them? The, the bug zappers on the porch. Like it's that glowing light. We, we know that's not natural. There's something not natural about that, but we're strangely attracted and drawn into it till it, it, it zaps and kills us, right? Asaph said, there's a particular kind of arrogance he was attracted to, like a glowing bug zapper on the porch. And here's what the arrogance he was attracted to looked like. Look at verse three and following. It says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. The way the Bible defines arrogance as self-centered disregard for others and a life lived independent from God means that there is some of this in all of us. There's some some arrogance in nearly everyone. But we are not envious of nearly everyone, are we? Here's the kind of arrogant person we envy. Verse three, they're prosperous. They break whatever rules they want and they prosper. Verse four, they don't seem to suffer like other people do. Their body is fat. They have luxury. They have plenty. They have an abundance of food. They have an enviable body type. In Asaph's day, that was fat. In our day, that may be fit, right? They're, they're, we envy them. They're that Instagram model or fitness coach that you follow, quote unquote, for inspiration only, right? They don't seem to have the problems that others do. Verse five, they're not in trouble as other men. 
nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse six, they strut their stuff. Their pride, pride is their necklace. They strut their stuff. They flaunt their wealth and privilege and good looks. And what else do they do? Verse six, they oppress people. The garment of violence covers them. And oppression in our day often takes more subtle forms than it did in Asaph's day. It can look a lot more like manipulation than violence. More like using people than abusing them. The people Asaph envies use other people like tools. They cultivate millions of followers on Twitter in order to feel validated and self-important. They don't care about those people. They use them for themselves. They feel good about themselves. And we see in verse seven, boy, they are really fat. Verse seven, their eyes bulge from fatness. I can't help but think of um, Kim Jong-un at this point, right? There is no one saying to that man, no supreme leader, you cannot have that third dessert. There's no one telling him that in his life, right? Their eyes bulge from fatness. Look at the rest of verse seven. Their imaginations, the imaginations of their heart run riot. This reminds me of Romans chapter one, that people become inventors of evil. They're using their imaginations to to create new ways to do evil. As soon as there's some kind of technological advancement, what happens? The Hugh Hefners of the world take it and are the first to exploit it, to convey pornography. And it's amazing how they have society's envy. Oh, I wish that was me. (laughs) Instead of condemnation. Look at what else, verse eight. These people look down their noses and they mock. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They look down at others. They look down their noses at others. For some of us, all it takes is being mocked a few times before we just give up and go join the side of the mockers. You know, sadly, that seems to be even more true the younger you are. I see this, particularly in Europe, I see this. I, I say to kids in Christian families, grown, who've grown up in Christian families, that some of you do not believe the gospel, not because you've heard some compelling argument against Christianity, but because somebody laughed at you. Somebody mocked your family for believing in God. Or some comedian that you like makes jokes about those who believe in God. That's why you don't believe. What a pitiful reason is that? You've been steered away from faith by people who are doing this, verse nine. They have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. People speak against things far beyond their understanding and then talk like their perspective is the only one that makes sense in the whole world, right? You see this everywhere. There are people like this all around us. They're on our TVs. We follow them on Twitter. We subscribe to their YouTube channels. They're our friends on Facebook. And they provoke this problem, both for Asaph and for us, verse 10, Therefore, his people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked 
and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. These people that we see, they they say with their lives, how does God know? How does God know? And why would God care? My life, what I do. How does God know? Why would God care? And then we scroll down Instagram, our feed, and we see their lives. And we begin to think, maybe God doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't care. These look like nice people. They look like they're enjoying themselves. They're having a good time. Always at ease, ever increasing in wealth, doing whatever they want. And we're tempted to conclude, verse 13, surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Because our experience feels so different by contrast. Verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's what my life feels like by comparison with what I see. I I say that God is good to his people but it looks like I have a lot more problems and pain than these other people who aren't his, who who don't give God a second thought. Have I been fooled? Have I believed a lie? If not, how else am I to interpret my experience? It's a question that we need to wrestle with. Because if we just vented these thoughts before really wrestling with them, we'd put ourselves and others at risk. Like verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Yes, at this point, I, I plead with you. I plead with everyone. Don't throw your hands up in the air and give up because you have some troublesome question about the existence of God or why do bad things happen to good people or why do evil people prosper if God is good? How can God be good and Paris Hilton have 10 million followers on Instagram? It just doesn't make sense. Throw your hands in the air. It doesn't make sense. Don't betray. There are good answers to troublesome questions. And we should always be encouraged as Christians to ask hard questions. Uh, Augustine was right. He said, we as Christians are in a position of faith seeking understanding. Lord, we believe. Help me understand why it's true. All the good reasons that it's true. Because I'll guarantee you, you're not going to ask a question that hasn't been asked many times before in 2,000 years of church history. Why? Because you're not that clever. (laughs) And human experience has not changed that drastically. But just because the first Christian you ask doesn't give you a good answer, don't assume that there isn't one. Where would you be if you made that assumption asking people for directions? If the first person you asked for directions stumbled around and gave you some impossible, vague answer, 
you wouldn't say to yourself, well, I guess there must not be a way to get to Target from here after all. Every question you have has already been asked and there are libraries full of answers that have satisfied literally billions of people over 2000 years, okay? Let's see how Asaph gets an answer for his question. Okay, he's asking the question, how can God be good to his people and yet I suffer while the arrogant unbeliever prospers? The transition from verse 16 to 17 is the turning point for the whole chapter. Look at this, verse 16. It says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Asaph didn't have an answer to his question until he came into the house of the Lord. The sanctuary, the the tabernacle in the Old Testament was symbolic of God's presence. There you encountered God's people worshiping the person of God in the presence of God. And not only this, but in the sanctuary, this was also the place where you encountered the word of God opened before you, being read and spoken and taught. As Asaph encounters God's presence with his people living under his word, not unlike what's happening right now, the answer to his question becomes clear. The prosperity of the wicked and my present pain are only for a moment and then they're gone. Only a vapor's breath and then they both are swiftly carried away. The beauty of the Instagram model, the serial relationships of the playboy, the wealth of the Russian oligarch, and the tweets of presidents are only for a vapor, and then they're gone forever. And the same is gloriously true of our pain, our distress, our tears, and our troubles. They will all die with the dawn. When the king returns to set all things right, for the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and thus the true king will always be known. It takes being with God's people, under God's word, surrounded by God's presence, for Asaph to get a grander perspective on his trouble and the wicked's prosperity. He now understands that this is all the hell that he will ever experience. And this also is all the heaven that they will ever know right now. And then it's gone. Indeed, the very things he envied, he now sees them as traps. Look at verse 18 and following. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How, are they, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when roused, you will despise their form. What are the slippery places that lead people to destruction that Asaph mentions here? What are they? 
They are all things that we would naturally envy. That's the shocker. They're all things that we would envy. Wealth, we would envy it. But Jesus said, what? How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the rich see themselves as self-sufficient. They, more than others, have reason to love the world more than they love its maker. That's why the rich man walked away from Jesus sad, because he had much. Though most everyone desires it, wealth easily becomes a golden stumbling block that people trip over to their destruction. Far more slip and fall upon wealth than escape it unharmed. Far more. Good looks and physical beauty is also a slippery place to stand. Just imagine this. Imagine if you were the most attractive person anyone knew. Everyone wanted your killer good looks. Yeah, Colby says, I don't have to imagine that, man. I don't have to imagine. Just, just imagine that was you. But if you stood out so much from the crowd, do you know who would pursue you? Asaph does. It would be the arrogant, the rich, the powerful, They would want you at their side to make them look more rich and powerful. You'd be their trophy and they'd be your ticket into an exclusive club. And that would be a slippery place to stand, wouldn't it? An easy path to destruction with a life lived divorce from feeling any need for God, any need for Jesus. Another slippery place is ability. Suppose you were the best football player in the country and no one could touch you. What seems to be a good thing could also be a very slippery place to stand. With everyone lining up to shake your hand and tell you how great you are, guess what? You would begin to believe it after a time. It would be hard to look to Jesus as your savior when your abilities enable you to function so much like your own savior. I think this will, this will change your life when you get it. Nearly everything you would envy is actually a slippery slope that we should thank God for withholding from us. When we see it that way, envy is turned on its head, isn't it? God, thank you for withholding. That thing, however good it is, apparently would not have been good for me. How many slippery places has God spared us from? Perhaps many that we explicitly asked him to give us. That promotion at work, that move to such and such a place, a certain romantic relationship, things that God knew wouldn't be good for us, which might have destroyed us or inflated our pride or else dominated our thoughts and our lives if we had them. The, the man we, we left in charge of the church in England, his name was Tim Chester, gifted guy, pastor. I remember him saying once that, man, I would like a nice car. I'd like to have a nice car. 
But then the more he thought about it, he said, I realized that it, it might actually be awful to have a nice car. I'd be so much more concerned about keeping it nice, not letting it get scratched, keeping it clean, not being able to lend it out to others without worrying about it. I'd be so much more upset if something happened to it. Many of the, of the things that we envy in others come with great unseen costs attached to them. And these create slippery places for our souls. Let me make one very pointed application here. And for once, I'd be thrilled if you find this application completely irrelevant to your life. But I fear that for many of us, it will not be so. One of the most destructive ways we envy the arrogant today is through online pornography. Pornography is nothing new, but the internet has made it widespread, free, and anonymous to indulge in. The average first age of exposure continues to drop, and we should weep over this. It's somewhere between 8 and 11 today. 8 and 11. Smartphones and friends who have smartphones are the big reason why the age continues to drop. Parents, you need to know that. You're not, uh, you're not, you're now have to prepare your kids for not if they encounter pornography, but when they encounter it. But besides for accidental exposure, what brings pornography into our lives? For some, the pathway will be curiosity or boredom, which is not very far from envy, is it? I'm wanting to experience something I do not have right now. That's boredom, that's curiosity. But for others, the pathway is undeniably envy. I'm frustrated with real life romance. So I'll I'll indulge in the fake where no one ever says no and my every fantasy can be indulged. When we seek out porn, we envy the arrogant. We envy the arrogant, just like Asaph, wanting the pleasure and intimacy that they are packaging and selling. We think porn will satisfy our desires, but it doesn't. And it can't, it can't. No more than you can satisfy a fire by continuing to put more wood upon it, right? The the more you feed lust, the hotter it burns and the more it wants to consume. No fire was ever satisfied by dumping more fuel on it. You know that, (laughs) right? Sex is like a fire. You heard it in church first, folks. Sex is like a fire. If we keep sex where it's designed to be, like a fire in the fireplace, guess what? It keeps the whole house warm. It's nice, it's pleasant, but take it outside the fireplace and what happens? It burns the house down. It destroys relationships, lives. Instead of satisfying, it leaves us feeling like this. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within Then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. We often think that 
sexual expression will make me feel more fully human. Because that's what our culture is telling us, right? But outside its proper context, does it make us feel more human or less human? More valued or less valued? Makes us feel more used instead of more loved. Like verse 22, we feel senseless, ignorant, and like a beast before you. So what do we do when we act without sense and beastly before God? When we foolishly fall for the same temptations again and again and again, what do we do? First, we let our sin humble us. Humble us. And from a place of humility, we repent. Believing the gospel of Jesus afresh and anew. Believing that Jesus knew my every future failure when he chose to save me. He has taken hold of me and will never let me go. In other words, we believe verses 23 and 24. Exactly where Asaph goes. Looking in verse 22, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you in my sin. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Do you wanna overcome envy in your life? The envy that fuels your porn addiction? Then fight envy by believing this. Verse 23, God is continually with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Believe that God sees you every moment every day with your phone in your hand, with your hand upon the mouse, God sees you. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. But with each temptation always provides a way of escape. He's intervening, verse 23, in your life. You have taken hold of my right hand and believe in God's word and seek to hide it in your heart, verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me. With your counsel, you have guided me. David said, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And believe this, believe that glory is coming, verse 24. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Jesus said, it is the pure in heart who will see God. None of us are pure in heart newsflash. But how do we become that? How do we become pure? It's by the washing that comes with believing the gospel. Jesus' blood shed for us to make the foul and dirty to make us clean. It's believing the gospel word that washes us and gives us a pure heart before God. So far better than taking a break from social media which you may wanna do from time to time or unfollowing certain people on Instagram, which you may need to do or installing internet filters, which is wise. Far better than all protections is actually having your heart changed. And true heart change only comes through the gospel. 
Rules and firewalls can protect you, but only the gospel can change your heart's cry to this. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The heart is the battlefield where we must fight envy. Envy can only be killed if we overcome it with something greater, a superior love. Only a superior love can push it out. Replacing old desires with greater desires, a a superior love for God. Verse 25, whom have I in, in heaven but you and beside you I desire nothing on earth. How is that possible? It's when God is is big and great in your heart. Envy can only be killed if it's overcome by a superior love, replacing the old desires with new. So the Bible, realize this, the Bible isn't calling us to give up things, but rather to embrace what is best, what is most satisfying and longest lasting, namely God himself. That's who my heart is to embrace. And the stakes aren't small. Life is not like a game show where you you miss the grand prize, so you get the consolation prize. Here, have this frozen yogurt maker. You know, nobody wants that, but here, take it. The, The Bible warns that the stakes here are life and death. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far away, what happens to them? They perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. If God is not your treasure, if King Jesus isn't the primary allegiance of your heart, then you'll perish as a rebel when he comes to set all things right. But if God is your supreme love and portion, then his coming will be good news. Verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your good works. I think for some of us here this morning, this psalm is a call to life. Jesus has taken all your guilt, the guilt of all your envy. He has taken it upon himself and he has defeated death for you so that you can embrace God as your refuge and portion for the first time. God has graciously provided you with a way of escape from the slippery places of Instagram beauty, Snapchat intimacy, Twitter followings, and online pornography that promises nearly everything, but never pays off. For the first time, this morning, for the first time, you can be free to be who you really are as you conquer the envy of others with a superior satisfaction in God. There are some who need to believe the gospel and embrace Christ for the first time this morning. But for the rest of us who have believed, we know our fight isn't over, don't we? We've changed to the winning team We've been put on the winning side, but that doesn't mean every battle will go our way. We still have hard, the hard work of daily believing, 
daily putting to death the envy of the arrogant through believing the gospel. And there will be battles lost. You may come in here this morning and feel like, I've just, I've lost the battle big time this week, again and again. There will be battles lost when we suddenly realize, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. I'm envying the arrogant, the rich, the beautiful, the confident, the false intimacy of porn. I'm doing it again. When we fall in battle, it's crucial to be trained in how to pick ourselves back up again and get back into the fight. So perhaps this is what you need to hear most. When you fall, when you envy the arrogant, when we fail and sin, first, we're humbled by our failures, which doesn't mean despair. Humility doesn't mean self-pity or self-loathing. Humility means owning and confessing. Yes, I did this, yes, that has come from my heart. It's full of wickedness and deceit. We own and confess our foolishness, our envy, our lust, our sin. And then we believe the good news again. We believe the gospel again. We believe again what God says is true. Verse 23. Yes, I've fallen, but nevertheless, you are continually with me. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. We are engaged in a lifelong battle to believe. A lifelong battle to believe the gospel. To kill our envy with the sword of God's truth. To remember many of our desires will lead us to slippery places that would steal away our ultimate joy. Let's remember and believe. Surely God is good to his people. Surely God is good to those who embrace Christ as their savior, Lord, and King. Let's believe that afresh today and have faith kill our envy and put to death our arrogance. Let's believe the gospel and make this our heart's cry. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing our waywardness, confessing our sin, confessing how prone we are to envy the arrogant, to see wealth, to see intimacy and run after it and to make it our ultimate, to make it an idol in our hearts, uh, to put other good things aside, to, put, to push you to one side that we might have this thing and it gives us only pain. It doesn't satisfy it leads to despair and emptiness. Lord, I pray that you would fill our emptiness again with the good news of the gospel of Christ. May Jesus be our treasure, our king. Lord, as we come and even now prepare uh, uh, to come to his table, here is truth that we can taste and touch that our king has died for us to make us one people together and to cleanse us and, and, and bring us to his father. Uh, Lord, may we confess our sin, may we own it, but may we also own our Savior this morning. 
May every heart rejoice that Christ is king and that he is continually with us. His rod and staff comfort us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, and he will bring us to glory. This table, as we eat and drink, is a promise that Christ is coming. He, the one who has died, has defeated death, and he will return for his bride. May we eat and drink, confessing our sin and remembering his death for us and that he will come again. May every heart be a believing heart this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.